I didn't have any idea until I came into Al-Anon in 2021, seven years later, how typical financial and sexual problems are in marriages affected by alcoholism. Welcome to episode 383 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Diana, Margaret, Hillary, Joy, Mary, Catherine, and Elisa. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Diana, Margaret, Hillary, Joy, Mary, Catherine, and Elisa for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer. I'm your host today, and joining me today is Laurel. Welcome, Laurel, to The Recovery Show. Thanks. I'm so happy to be here. We like to open with a reading, and you chose several. What are we going to start with? Why don't we start with the June 3rd reading? Okay. I think this was the one that, when I first read it in Al-Anon, I felt so seen and so not alone for the first time. This is June 3rd, page 155 from Courage to Change. In order to keep family and friends from interfering with their drinking, alcoholics sometimes create diversions by accusing or provoking. At such a time, we who have been affected by someone else's drinking tend to react, to argue, and to defend ourselves. As a result, nobody has to look at the alcoholism, for we are too busy focusing on the particular point being argued. Any topic will do, and unfortunately what we defend against, we make real. When we take step one, we admit that we are powerless over this disease. We do not have the strength necessary to fight it. Defending ourselves by engaging in arguments with actively drinking or otherwise irrational people is as fruitless as donning armor to protect ourselves from a nuclear explosion. Only a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. That's actually yesterday's reading as we're recording this on June 4th. I'm reminded also of a similar passage in the book How Elanon Works, um, which includes the wonderful metaphor of picking up the rope. That reading was really meaningful because I had felt like something was off in my marriage for a long time, and I couldn't figure out what it was. I was really committed to being married. I loved my wife. I wanted things to work out, and I was willing to do just about anything to make them work out. But we'd go to counseling, and we'd talk about all kinds of things that were my fault that I had done that that didn't help. And I apologized for those things and tried to own them. And it was only after coming into program that I realized that we never, ever talked about her drinking and counseling. Mm. And when I realized that, it absolutely blew my mind. <laughs> the way in which I had participated in denial and protecting and and enabling. I I was really grateful when I came into Al-Anon for that reason. Sometimes I feel like the day I walked into Al-Anon is the beginning of the story, but it's not really the beginning of the story, is it? No, I I met my wife in 2007. We were then both finishing graduate degrees and in our early 30s and smart, young, energetic, ambitious people. 
we knew we both wanted to have kids, which for a same-sex couple was easier in 2007 than maybe 10 years before, but still still a project requiring some work and planning. So we decided actually to get married because we knew we wanted to have a family together. We decided on the family first and then said, well, I guess we ought to get married. Yeah, a lot of the legal stuff around family works better if you're actually married. Sure does. Sure does. So at that time, we couldn't get legally married in Maryland where we lived. So we had a church wedding because we are, are both believers. And then we both got jobs in Connecticut. So off we went in May or June of 2008 to Connecticut. And in Connecticut, we could be married. We could be civilly unioned at that time. So we had an official legal civil union ceremony and then started new jobs. And a couple of years later, had our first son. My wife carried him in 2011. When I met her, she had been sober for six years, or I now know enough to say she had been dry for six years. She was not drinking, but she was not in any recovery program. And she stayed sober. She remained a non-drinking person for the next six years. So for 12 years, she, she didn't drink, but she wasn't in any recovery program. And I didn't really think much about it. She told me, she definitely kept me out of it. It wasn't a story she wanted to share. She would just say things like, you wouldn't have liked me when I was drinking. Turned out she was quite right about that. <laughs> oh my. She had wild stories from her 20s. And then at 26, things came to a head and her family intervened. And she did see a therapist for a while who helped her, I think, to get sober and to, to stay sober for a bit. But she would always say things like, AA just doesn't work for me. And I think she's one of those people who, she's extremely intelligent, very, very smart, very well-educated. And I think she thinks that she can outsmart her disease. Mm -hmm. But in any case, and I thought she could too. Yeah. So <laughs> I didn't think much about it. She told me I didn't have to worry about it. I could drink normally around her. I could have alcohol in the house. She didn't want me to make a big deal out of it. She didn't want to call any attention to it. And then in 2013, by that point, we had a tiny baby and we were both pretty miserable in our jobs. 2008, 2009 was the beginning of that recession. And we both mm -hmm. were in entry-level positions where we just kept getting squeezed, like just more work kept getting put on our plates. And we were both salaried, so there was no overtime. And now we had this baby and the message was like, we just have to stay until the work is done. We don't care when daycare closes. We don't care about your baby, whatever. So I started looking for a new job. It's much harder for me to relocate. She's in healthcare. You can get a job in healthcare just about anywhere there's a hospital. But it's also a very high stress profession. Yeah. yeah. So I uh, was lucky enough to get a job at a, at a bigger, better place, but it was a big move. It involves moving from the U.S. to Canada and her family was in Canada. So that was good for her and the job was good for me. It was like a win-win. We got closer to some grandparents for the kids and all those things. And we were trying to have a second kid and do all the things you're trying to do um, in your 20s and 30s when you're just starting out. So up we came, fresh start, so excited, new country, new job. And we were really thrilled to make that relocation. And I really liked my new job. I liked the place we were living. We felt good. We felt good. We felt happy. We started the process to begin adoption. As soon as we got here, I was still in the probationary period of my job. So I was also trying really hard to prove myself and earn a permanent position and 
She didn't have a permanent job yet. She was working on a per diem basis at the hospital, replacing people who were on leaves and things like that. Sometime in the first six months after we moved, I think she, she told me that she wanted to try drinking again. She said, I think I can do it normally. Not the same sad person that I was in my twenties. I, I was extremely apprehensive. I thought this was a terrible idea. It made me very nervous. And I extracted all kinds of promises for her that if it became a problem, she would stop. And of course, she made all those promises. Mm. And I found it really hard to say no, because it felt like I was saying to my spouse, no, I don't trust you. It's hard to move forward in a partnership if you've expressed that kind of a lack of trust. But of course, I didn't know at the time that this is the great delusion of every alcoholic, that someday they will be able to drink normally. I have since listened to some open shares from AA meetings and and things like that that have illustrated that to me. But in 2014, she began to drink again casually. At first, it seemed fine. We got our first foster baby that summer, and that was a huge distraction because we didn't know if we were going to get to keep her. Ultimately, she went back to her birth mother that fall, which was a big loss. I continued to have a new, big, exciting, but also demanding job. And she didn't have a permanent position yet. And at the time, I didn't connect the things that happened next to the drinking. And I don't know exactly what the connection is. I don't know that I necessarily think it's A caused B, like she started drinking and her thinking got distorted and she made some bad decisions or whether the drinking made her depressed or anxious or interfered with anti-anxiety medications or something. But in any case, the first thing that that happened that was really, I don't know, I want to say the first domino (laughs) at the fall of my marriage, maybe, was that she decided not to continue in the career she trained for. She'd gotten a second master's degree in Maryland and had about $120,000 in student loan debt in the U.S. to pay off and had trained for a job that, that had a nice salary. It starts at six figures. One day I picked her up from working per diem at the hospital and she said, there's a full-time job opening in the field, unionized, permanent benefits. I'm not going to apply for it. And I was like, what do you mean you're not going to apply for it? This is the day we've been waiting for. This is the last thing that sets us up to be really successful in this new place. And there was just no discussion. It was just, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. I don't want to do it. I can't do it. I felt really betrayed and worried about money and also devastated by the like sense that we had this sort of partnership contract, right? Like we mm-hmm. had made plans together and we got married and moved twice together. And now we had a kid and a second kid. And she was making a unilateral decision that would affect all of us with no consultation. Yeah. And that that made me pretty upset. And I have to admit, I did not react well. <laughs> I said some things like, you're letting down the whole family. How could you do this? Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. And I didn't know at the time how much, because I was really focused on myself and my own reactions and my own insecurity. But I think that really activated her shame. And rather than changing her mind, she just dug in her heels and also just got very angry at me for making her feel bad. Were you ever able to learn more about why she made that decision? What she trained to do was to be a pathologist assistant. 
which is a person in a hospital who takes your biopsies or whatever else and marks them up and describes them and basically does everything except the final diagnosis, makes the slides the pathologists are going to look at to make the diagnosis. Okay. Also do autopsy. And when she was in school in Baltimore, autopsy was actually her absolute favorite part of this. Hmm. She got to go work at the medical examiner's office in Baltimore. And you can imagine that's like a real life CSI every day. Yeah. She was thrilled. And I used to have to remind her not to talk about autopsies at dinner with other people because people did not really find that amusing. (laughs) But it was just fascinating to her and interesting. and, And she loved it. In Connecticut, autopsy wasn't part of the job because they had a medical examiner system outside the hospital to do autopsies. She didn't do autopsies for five years. We get to to Canada and um, the pathology assistants rotate through the autopsy lab. What she said when she told me she couldn't pursue it was, she said a lot of things. The first thing she said was, I don't think I can do autopsy. And I said, why? It was like your favorite thing. I don't understand this. And have you done one? And she said, since I had a baby, I Mm. just can't look at a dead body and not see it as somebody's child, mother Mm -hmm, or father. mm -hmm. And I said, okay, I can see that. But I thought also, this was something you loved. You haven't done it in a long time. Do you just have some anxiety and apprehension? Could you try it? Maybe there's counseling you could do to help you detach those feelings. Maybe there's a way around this. And I said, this is also a unionized position in a country where unions have a lot of power. You could take this position and then if you had trouble with it, you could probably get a dispensation from the union so that you don't have to do that part of the job. But she was like, no, I also don't want to do it because I'll be the low man on the totem pole in the union. I'll never get Christmas off. And I also don't want to do it because it makes my shoulders hurt to stand at the bench and cut all day. So it was like, once the excuse I challenged or knocked down or tried to rationalize in some way, there was one right behind it so that we never had to talk about the original one. And this is, that's part of the pattern, I think, of deflection that I understand now is yeah. Something all people do, but that alcoholics are particularly good at. Yeah. So the next thing that happened was, and this is personal, and we don't talk about this much in Al-Anon. I'm going to talk about it because it's really central to my story. About two weeks after she told me she wasn't pursuing her career, she told me that she was really an asexual and not interested in sex. And for the benefit of person who's listening who's not familiar with that term. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Back in 2014, there was a lot less discussion about this. There's more now, and you can certainly find out about asexuality and people who call themselves aces if you want to Google it. But an asexual is somebody who does not experience sexual arousal or interest in sex. Okay. And there are, I believe that those people exist and uh, do not experience human sexuality the way other people do. No judgment. But I was married to this woman already for six years, and there had been lots of sex up until this point. There was never any inkling that this was an issue. Our sex life had changed after she gave birth, which is not uncommon. But I didn't feel like there was this like lessening of affection or interest. It was really surprising when she said this to me. In retrospect, part of me wonders, and again, I 
don't know the inside of someone else's mind. But in retrospect, I wonder if this was the withdrawal of affection because she wasn't happy with how I reacted to the decision about not pursuing her career. Interesting. So in my head, I feel that there's a difference between sexual attraction and affection that, that you can have one without the other you can have affection without sexual attraction but in your case your experience was that that they were both withdrawn yeah to a certain extent i think i felt so rejected yeah okay by this assertion yeah she was trying to to do it in a way where it was no one's fault it was this was like a sort of, this is just a fact about me we have to accept. And mm -hmm. and coming on the heels of the I'm not applying for the job decision, in the middle of me being on probation at work, having a foster baby at home, we weren't sure we'd get to keep. Having just moved to Canada. Yeah. I was just like, well, you married a lesbian, so you better figure it out. <laughs> it was just like, I'm sorry, I don't have any more room for anything else right now. And it was really a rough moment. That sounds like an understatement. Yeah, it was pretty devastating. It was pretty devastating. To me, in the space of less than a month, my life partner had withdrawn her commitment to our financial partnership and to our sexual partnership. I felt really betrayed and really insecure. I felt rejected and angry. And I didn't have any idea until I came into Al-Anon in 2021 seven years later, how typical financial and sexual problems are in marriages affected by alcoholism. The first time I read The Dilemma of the Alcoholic Marriage, which was originally written in 1967, I think, it has this avocado green cover. It definitely doesn't talk about any same-sex couples. It's all about alcoholic men and their wives. But everything else, I could completely relate to. It absolutely blew my mind, and it was so oddly validating and comforting to realize that a i wasn't alone and b that there there might be a way to understand these things as related to her disease yeah. and again i don't know exactly what the causation is whether these things were really caused by the drinking which had begun just six months before all this started or whether the drinking you know in the dilemma of the alcoholic marriage they talk about the dual personality of the alcoholic and the kind of the Jekyll and Hyde experience that you might have with someone who loves you when they're not drinking and says terrible things to you when they are. And so those things really helped me look back over this past, which just seems just bizarre to me at the time and since and think, okay, maybe there's something here. Maybe it's not that she just changed after we married. Maybe the drinking was part of that change in some way. You know, we were in the midst of trying to adopt a child and the first foster baby was returned to her birth mom in late October of 2014. All this happened in 2014. A year later in September of 2015, we began to foster a second newborn. And the next two and a quarter years, we fostered him hoping to adopt him and did finally adopt him in December of 2017. The, the, the sort of precarious experience of loving a baby, bonding with the baby, and not knowing for two years whether that baby will stay in your family. Very, very hard. They wow. call it fostering with a view to adoption. And I can talk more about why the foster care system has moved in that direction. 
here and in parts of the U.S. But we would both say, my ex-wife and I, that we have trauma related to that process. Mm -hmm. But that emotional stress definitely contributed to the problems in our marriage and probably most, (laughs) most obviously to the denial that I was in about how her drinking was affecting me, let alone her, because we you just have to emotionally shut down when you're in a situation like that. And you can't really think about the future because you don't know if this family is going to look the same way in the future, right? I can't imagine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 it's quite the experience. So by the summer of 2017, I knew that her drinking was a problem. I was coming out of denial about that. But of course, I thought the solution was, I just need to say the right words to her and she'll stop drinking. Ha ha ha. We went to a conference for my job and I came back from the conference one day to find her totally drunk in the hotel room with a toddler and a baby. And there were like dead soldiers, empty beer bottles lined up around the room. And I was just, my stomach just dropped and I thought, oh man, what am I going to do about this? Mm -hmm. But she would Mm -hmm. not hear it. She would not hear it. And any attempt to have a conversation about it would just get me yelled at. The verbal abuse was, I recognize now, part of keeping anyone from looking too hard at the drinking. So if I started complaining about it, it was just, you were gone too long. Well, you worked too much. You did this and you did that and you did the other thing. And being a good partner and someone who's self-aware and willing to think critically about myself, I would try to respond to all that. And of course, that would deflect any conversation about the drinking. Yeah, I'm sure many of us have been in that place. I'm actually going to read this paragraph that's on page 30 of how Eleanor works. Sure. Because it disconnects to, in my mind, it connects, okay? It's as if we're holding one end of a rope and an alcoholic grabbed the other end and started to tug. Most of us would react automatically. We would tug back. It never occurs to us that we don't have to play. If we knew we had options, we might choose to drop the rope. There is no tug of war unless both players hang on their ends. And the next paragraph, this is the part that I actually was thinking about, I guess. For example, some alcoholics feel guilty about their need to drink and find it much easier to blame the drinking on someone else. And I I just heard that in what you were describing. And the rest of that paragraph is, such alcoholics often provoke those around them trying to start an argument or create a crisis. We who live or work with them tend to react to this provocation, arguing back, defending ourselves against unjust accusations, making accusations of our own. In the end, the alcoholic gets exactly what he or she was looking for, an excuse to drink. Dry or sober alcoholics sometimes use the same tactics to create a diversion so that everyone's attention will be drawn away from the topic or situation with which they are uncomfortable. Yeah, for sure. Learning to drop the rope to not engage has been, I want to say, one of the most valuable lessons of Al-Anon for me. And for me, actually, the way I would say it is that it was learning not to talk because I'm super verbal. I'm a big talker. I make my living with words. And I came from a family where we could always talk about our problems and resolve them. Mm-hmm. And people would follow words with actions that matched. So I kind of took for granted that that's how the world worked. It's been a hard but important lesson for me to learn that being sincere and earnest and saying the right words isn't going to solve the problem. That And exposing myself, trying to model 
self-awareness and self-critique to someone who isn't healthy is not going to, it's not going to work. It's just going to expose me to further abuse. I just have to put down the rope, walk away. Yeah. So in any case, during this period from 2013 to 2017, I was still in my probationary period in my job. I got permanent full-time status in November of 2017, a month before we adopted our second child. So two things happened at the end of 2017 that were the culmination of these long-term projects. And it was the end of precarity at work and the end of precarity at home, some permanency in both places. And I thought I'd feel great. We had a big party the day we adopted the second child. I thought, this is great. Like, through two hoops, amazing. And when all was said and done, I was so angry. I was so angry because I had been pushing down my feelings and not dealing with them to survive an active alcoholic, to survive those sort of insecurities about employment and my family. And I was angry that, that such things had been required of me. Like I'm an excellent parent and a really good employee. I didn't deserve to have to survive that kind of precarity for as long as I did. And I was just mad at the system. (laughs) And I think also angry that I was working so hard in so many ways to build this life and my partner was letting me down. So I was now the primary breadwinner. She was working, but she's making about as half as much as we had assumed she would make before we moved. And her job was a one-year contract. So every year we were waiting to see if it would be renewed for another year. I think we were both headed for a crisis. And as alcoholics sometimes do, my wife has this pattern of kind of staging these big scenes. So the day we adopted our second child, we had a huge party and people came from all over the U.S. as well as from our community here to celebrate with us that we had adopted our second child. And she got publicly falling down drunk, slurring her words, falling over. And behind the scenes, when I confronted her, not only about the drinking, but just about the way she was acting because she was embarrassing me. Yeah. It's just right out of so many things encouraged to change and how Aladon works. She just said absolutely cruel things to me. She said to me that night, this is why we never have sex because you're such a bitch. Mm. Like knife to the heart. And of course, the next day, she didn't even remember saying it. But I'll never forget it. So I didn't think there was anything I could do except demand that she quit drinking at that point. And I remember saying to her, if you don't stop drinking, I'm going to have to take the kids and leave. It's not okay. And she did. She'd been a dry drunk for 12 years and she went back to being one for a while. She went into therapy for a while. We went to counseling together for a while. This is when in counseling, it was all about the mean things I said when she didn't take that job. I wasn't understanding about her sexuality. And I remember her saying to me, of course, I promised you I'd stop. And of course, that was a lie. And I thought, how am I supposed to move forward in a marriage with you when you knew you were, what? She agreed to go see a a sex therapist and she agreed to get her sort of hormone levels checked and make sure there wasn't anything wrong with her in those ways that was causing her disinterest in sex. But we never talked about the drinking. We went to marital counseling after she staged that insane scene, like it's a reverse intervention. Like she waits for 
her extended family and friends to come from far and near and acts out in front of them, which always causes her brother to intervene. He's the one who intervenes in her 20s. So she waits for him to show up and then stages this scene so that he'll intervene and she can reenact, I guess, the cycle that is the only way she knows how to be sober. But I was still totally in denial about how her drinking had affected us, really. And so was she. We never talked about her drinking and therapy, and it just seems crazy to me now. But when you're caught up in the crisis and the drama and the stakes are so high, a marriage, two little kids, you don't have any perspective anytime I try to talk about the drinking. Because she wasn't drinking then. She'd stopped. Then it's, why are you talking about the past? And she'd redirect it back to how I made her feel bad about her career choices or asexuality. Or I just stopped making her feel so bad, we'd be fine. I think I understand now. And, and here I actually want to mention an episode of The Recovery Show that was extremely meaningful to me early on. It's episode 146, where you talk about emotional safety and emotional security. I listened to that episode several times it really spoke to me i read a lot of the things that you had linked at the bottom of that episode too and that's where i started to learn about shame and the the way people can get stuck in a shame cycle it was part of learning that what was happening wasn't about me that no matter what i said or did my wife is going to feel shame because she was stuck in her own cycle of shame i had to just put down the rope (laughs) because I couldn't fix it. It wasn't up to me. It wasn't mine. I wasn't trying to make her feel ashamed. And so I couldn't prevent it either. It was something that she was going to have to deal with and I couldn't make her deal with it. Even telling her she was in a shame cycle wasn't going to help either. You know, like there was no, I was powerless over that. So she stayed sober. I, I remember her saying, I said to her, you cannot drink. You cannot drink again. Like, this is it. We tried it from 2014 to the end of 2017, and it doesn't work. It makes you someone I don't like who says terrible things to me and blames me for all the problems in our marriage. Yeah. When from my perspective, I was exactly who I was when we married. (laughs) I had not changed. So she stayed sober to my knowledge but she's very good at hiding it. So I don't really know how true that was until the summer of 2019. She had a relapse, but then stopped drinking again. And then the pandemic hit. I was home alone trying to do a full-time job from home while managing two little boys, ages four and eight, who were doing kindergarten and grade three online in French. Just, Just to put the cherry on the top of that cake. When this pandemic began and she went to work every day for the first year of the pandemic because she worked in healthcare. So she got to go have space and time. And I did not, I was not doing well by March of 2021. And at that point, she did start working from home, thankfully. So we could split the days a little bit more, but she relapsed in the fall of 2020. So summer of 2019, there's a relapse. Fall of 2020, there's a relapse. And then again, in the fall of 2021, and the thing that got me to come to Al-Anon is that in November of 2021, I didn't realize she was drunk at the time. I knew she was drinking. I had confronted her the 1st of November, and I knew that confronting her in person wasn't going to work. So I was trying something different. I still thought words were going to work. So I wrote her an email that said, 
I know you're drinking. I don't want to fight about it. That was all I said. And her response was, your concern is noted, but unnecessary. And two weeks later, she drove the boys across town while she was drunk. And I was a half an hour behind them, met them at the place we were all going for a birthday party. She was slurring her words when I got there. Scary. Continued to drink, thinking it was secret. Like, I think she was actually putting vodka in non-alcoholic beer cans in front of everyone. She tried to stand up and, and fell over on top of her knees. And then I think she got the sense that it wasn't going well. And so she said to the boys, come on, boys, let's go. We're going home. Like she was going to get in a car and drive them after falling over. Yeah. So I jumped up, put their coats on. I don't think they even had time to put their shoes on. I just grabbed their shoes and went to my car and drove away and had to explain to them something about what had just happened. Do you think... Or have you heard from them that they had some idea what was going on already? Yeah, they're six and ten. Now, the ten-year-old has learned about addiction and alcohol and other things at school mm-hmm. in their health class. Mm-hmm. So we could have some conversations about addiction. The six-year-old is, because he's adopted... He's also a lot less secure in his attachments. It's been yeah. really hard to watch him. But he'll say things to her. Mom, you drank alcohol and then you moved out. Why did you do that? Yeah, because he doesn't understand. Yeah, which I know makes her feel terrible. But I also think a part of me coming out of denial was stopping hiding things on her behalf. And stopping Mm -hmm. pretending that things weren't happening when they were. And I felt like I needed to be honest to a certain point with the boys. And they need to be safe. And they need to be safe. Absolutely. I know for me and other people that I know that their marriage partner is an alcoholic when they were actively drinking. Real concern about Maybe even more than concern, fear about yeah. what's going to happen if my partner is drunk and wants to or needs to drive somewhere with the kids. And what am I going to do? What am I going to be able to do? Yeah. I actually hear from a fair number of listeners with that question, like, what can I do? Well, I can share what I did. Please. I have put some measures in place. So I got home that night and I texted her and said, I don't want to see you for two weeks. You can come here and pack a bag tomorrow and I don't want to see you for two weeks. I was so angry and I felt so betrayed because one of the things I discovered in therapy session recently is that um, part of the way that codependency in our marriage worked out was that I would just let her do the things she liked doing because it created less tension and I was people pleaser. So I did all the housework and cooking and cleaning and grocery shopping, and she would do stuff with the kids. She would take them to all the weekend activities and evening activities because that's what she liked doing. And if I took the kids to all the activities, I'd come home and there would still be housework to do. So I would just do this part she didn't like doing, which meant that I counted on her to be a fun mom and kid-centered mom. Mm -hmm. So when she endangered them like that, 
it really undercut my sense of my partner as someone who was a lot of things, a lot of complicated things, but at her core, a really good parent. She loves those boys. She absolutely loves them and they love her. I don't have any doubt about that. Her disease was in the driver's seat that day. But my sense of betrayal that this one thing I counted on her to do and trusted her to do had now been undercut. My trust was gone. It was a big betrayal of the renegotiated deal of our marriage by that point. When she came the next day to pack a bag, I just looked at her and I said, why did you do that? Like, how could you do that? And because I'm so unhappy, because you make me so unhappy, because you work too much, because you don't support me. That the first four days, it was because I work too much. <laughs> and I felt like saying, well, if you want to, you know, bow out of your career, I can't really make the same choice, can I? Like, we do have a mortgage to pay. But the truth is, I don't work too much. But again, it's that deflection and diversion. And I hadn't learned to put down the rope yet. Four days later, after I had effectively, rationally, logically talked her out of the idea that I worked too much by pointing out all the ways in which I didn't and supported her. Then she switched to, I'm really an asexual, which we hadn't talked about in years at this point. I'm really an asexual and you made me feel broken by wanting to have intimacy in our marriage. Okay, great. Thanks. Okay. Well, I guess I can't fix that, can I? No, no words, no action. Nothing can fix that. And I just think at this point, she was just looking for any way to get out because she was so stuck in her shame and she felt even more ashamed about what she'd just done. I know that she did. So before I tell you what measures I put in for the kids, I'll tell you how I got to Al-Anon because it's a funny story. In that two weeks, she came to see the kids a couple times for dinner. And one night I just said, why can't you stop drinking? Like you did it for 12 years. And she told me she couldn't explain it and that I should go to Al-Anon. So AA doesn't work for her, but you should uh-huh. go to Al-Anon. Uh-huh. At that point, I had told her that she needed to go to, into therapy and go to AA if she ever wanted to see those kids again. So she was going to AA. She's not now, but I'm still going to Al-Anon. So yeah, my alcoholic told me to go to Al-Anon if I wanted to understand alcoholic. So I did. I was desperate. I was so mad, but I did not want a divorce. I did not want it to be over. I wanted my wife back. I wanted the person I married back. So I called the hotline and someone called me back to give me info for the Zoom meetings. And oh my gosh, that woman was so kind. She spoke to me for about an hour. She went over the three C's with me, which I'd never heard before. And that was absolutely life-changing. I mean, the relief to hear somebody tell me that I hadn't caused it. Especially because she had been telling you for years that you did cause it. Yeah. Yeah. And I couldn't cure it and I couldn't control it. And it wasn't up to me. It was a tremendous relief. So as I recall, there was not a meeting that day. I felt desperate, but I'm a huge podcast fan. I'm listening to a podcast all the time. So I opened up Stitcher and searched for Al-Anon or recovery or something. And I found the recovery show that day. And I think I listened to it almost nonstop for the next two weeks. I went to my first meeting a few days later on Zoom, and I've been gratefully coming back ever since. In January of this year, I asked a woman in one of my meetings to be my sponsor. We're doing a step study together. 
I did mm-hmm. 90 meetings in 90 days. For Christmas, I ordered every single Al-Anon book that was in print. Wow. <laughs> myself, and I got a big box from Virginia Beach. And and there are a lot of Al-Anon books. I don't have all of them. Yeah, I've got Discovering Choices and Reaching for Personal Freedom and Opening Our Hearts, Transforming Our Losses has been really helpful for me, yes. too, because I'm, I'm just hit by waves of grief these days. But. Yeah, that's a wonderful book. In any case, that was really helpful. So... The first things I did in terms of safety, and and I was barely in the rooms at this point, so I was really relying on advice from my lawyer mm-hmm. and messages from my higher power. I was praying pretty hard in those days, and I'm really grateful I arrived at this point in my life believing in a higher power because that has been so important. So the first thing I did was I separated our money. Because I had discovered that not only was she hiding the drinking for months before we got to this point, she'd started smoking again, and she was hiding the credit card bill of about $15,000 that she didn't want to tell me about. So I separated our money, and I said to her, I have enabled you to not live with the consequences of your decision about your career, and I'm not doing that anymore. Mm -hmm. So this is what it costs to pay for this house and this life that we have. And this is what half of that is. And that's what I expect from you if you want to stay in this house. And I spoke with a lawyer who advised me that I really had to put something in place to protect the kids. Because if something happened again, and I hadn't, then Children's Aid could come and remove the kids from both of our custody because I would have been neglecting their safety at that point too. So she recommended Soberlink which is a service that provides you with a breathalyzer that's Bluetooth linked to your cell phone. Three times a day, randomly, it will tell the alcoholic that they have to blow a breathalyzer. It has facial recognition technology, so it has to be them who's using it. And then it reports the results to a third party. What my alcoholic wanted was she wanted to buy her own breathalyzer and blow it in front of me every time she was going to drive the kids. And I said, no way. I cannot be in charge of your sobriety. I cannot be the sobriety police. So at this point, you're how far into Al-Anon? A week, two weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. You really picked up some things quickly there. Well, you know, listening to the recovery show, not stopping. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think I listened to co-parenting with an alcoholic sometime in those first two weeks. And it was great that you already had 400 episodes in the can, right? Like I couldn't exhaust my supply. And that was my the advice from my lawyer too. Basically, I said, we're going to formally separate, not because I wanted a divorce or wanted a separation, but because I just needed to mark that it was not okay what had happened and that things had to change and that I was not going to be in denial anymore. So legal separation, separated money, took sober league in place. And boy, was she angry about that. Oh, my goodness. She's still angry about it. She's still angry that I insisted on sober league. Because in her mind, if I'm the one who has the problem with her drinking, then I should be in charge of making sure she's not drinking. Yeah. Sure. Uh, in order to have shared custody of our son. She has to do Soberlink for a year, and she's also supposed to be in in some recovery program. She was going to AA for a couple of months, but 
has returned to the notion that it just doesn't work for her and she doesn't like it. When she said a couple things to me that that really made me want to take her inventory big time. <laughs> but um, she's like, I'm not powerless over this. I make choices. And you're like, so you chose to drive our kids drunk? Really? And she said things like, I don't have character defects. We all have character defects. Right? Okay. But oh. the pride and the shame are just so powerful. I was listening to a different podcast recently. It's an AA podcast. And the guy who was talking, he said he had his very simple test. He says, can you stop when you start? And can you stop starting? <laughs> and if you answer no to both those questions, then by his definition, you're probably an alcoholic. But the problem is she will admit that she's an alcoholic. She totally met. Yeah. She's an alcoholic, but she won't admit right. that she's powerless over it. And she won't admit that it has caused any of the other problems in our lives. Yeah, I guess those questions are, are his way of getting at the powerlessness. Mm -hmm. You think you make choices, but can you stop when you start? Mm -hmm. Can you have one drink consistently? Can you decide not to drink and stay with it? And anyway, I, I, a little bit off topic there. I mean, at this point, you're detaching really from her. Maybe this is a process that's been going on for a while. I was really stuck in the first month, like from mid-November to mid-December. And the idea that if I just said the right words to her, I could fix it all. I could save our marriage. I could find the old intimacy and connection that we've made when we met. And one day in emotional turmoil, squirrels running around in my brain, having every argument with her I could think of. I think I just sat down and said the serenity prayer over and over and over again, like a hundred times. Hmm. And when I woke up the next morning, there was a phrase in my head that I understood to be a message from my higher power. And that phrase was, live your truth, live your truth, live your truth, which I understood to mean that I could claim my own understanding of our situation without anyone else's validation. I didn't need to tell my wife what was really happening. There was no point in telling her that all her excuses and diversions were just ways of avoiding looking at her addiction and staying in denial. I could know that was true without her agreeing with me, without anyone else agreeing with me. And suddenly I was free from the need to tell, talk, explain, to win the argument. There was nothing to win. I knew what was true. And I was coming to understand that the only thing I could change in the situation was me. I began to set those boundaries and I stopped trying to connect emotionally with my wife because it just failed again and again. And she'd use any insights about myself that I was learning in Al-Anon against me in the next argument. And there's language about that in the dilemma of the alcoholic marriage too, about the ways that, that alcoholics sometimes do that. I started to rely on my friends in program and, and my other good friends for my emotional support, for talking things out, for reasoning things out. And I, I separated our money. I put those things in place with the kids. And I told her that I couldn't stay married to her as long as she wasn't in recovery, that just not drinking was not enough. Of course, I was still trying to manipulate and manage. I didn't want to get divorced. I wanted her to deal with her stuff. And I wasn't willing to give up on the idea that I could make her yet. The stakes felt so high. I was afraid I'd lose my house and my whole life 
when I put Soberlink in place, she accused me of being controlling. She knew that controlling was one of the things that we talked about in Al-Anon. She was briefly going to AA. She knew the lingo. Mm-hmm. I had admitted to her that I was recognizing the way I had manipulated and managed and martyred. So when I read this page from Courage to Change, it's page two, January 2nd. I just remember, I think I must have quoted this first line to 10 people that week because it just, it became one of the most meaningful things to me in program. So page two of Courage to Change says, Turning to an alcoholic for affection and support can be like going to a hardware store for bread. Perhaps we expect a good parent to nurture and support our feeling or a loving spouse to comfort and hold us when we're afraid or a caring child to want to pitch in when we're ill or overwhelmed. While these loved ones may not meet our expectations, it's our expectations, not our loved ones, that have let us down. Love is expressed in many ways, and those affected by alcoholism may not be able to express it the way we would like. But we can try to recognize love whenever and however it is offered. When it is not, we don't have to feel deprived. Most of us find an unfailing source of support and love in Al-Anon. With the encouragement and support of others, we learn to treat our needs as important and appropriate and to treat ourselves as deserving. Today's reminder, today the alcoholic may or may not be able to give us what we desire and no one person will ever offer all that we require. If we stop insisting that our needs be met according to our will, we may discover that all the love and support we need is already at our fingertips. In Al-Anon, I discover in myself the power to throw new light on a seemingly hopeless situation. I learn I must use this power not to change the alcoholic over whom I am powerless, but to overcome my own distorted ideas and attitude. And that's from one day at a time in Al-Anon. So that was a revelation to me that actually having attempting these conversations about self-awareness and processing what had happened to us and understanding what was going on was not something I was going to be able to do with her, at least not right now. Yeah. I feel like this third reading that you picked also connects when you decided to stop trying to control, when you decided to just to take care of your own needs instead of trying to fix her. And we have this saying, which I is in that reading, don't just do something, sit there. Yeah, and my version of that is is hands-off, pays-off. I hear that in my rooms a lot. So would you like me to read this one from October 7th? I think it fits here. Yeah. Interestingly, October 7th is my ex-wife's birthday. Well, <laughs> coincidence? Coincidence? Page 281 of Courage to Change. I felt my life was on hold. I wanted change. I expected it. I even tried to make it happen. But it was not within my power to make any of the changes I wanted. I was frustrated. I'm an action taker, so I feel better when I'm busy and industrious. There is a time to act. But in Al-Anon, I learned that there's also a time to not act, to stop and wait. As my sponsor puts it, don't just do something, sit there. How often I still find myself impatient with the pace of life. But today, when things don't happen according to my schedule, I can accept that there may be a reason and I can learn to adjust to what is. I may be experiencing great change on the inside, even though I see little evidence on the outside. I can keep in mind that waiting time doesn't have to mean wasted time. Even times of stillness have lessons to teach me. Today's reminder, the invitation to live life fully is offered to me each day. I can accept the pace of change today. 
Knowing it will bring both times of active involvement and periods of quiet waiting, I will let the surprises of the day open up before me. And then the quote from Lin Yu Tang is, Besides the noble art of getting things done, there is the noble art of leaving things undone. The wisdom of life consists in the elimination of non-essentials. And for me, I think I picked this one because I am a doer. I'm absolutely a doer. I'm a high-achieving, goal-oriented type A nutcase. It's hard for me once I make a decision not to find some way to act on it. But even more, it was hard for me to shut up. It was hard for me to stop wanting to have these conversations because I just believed that the right words were going to change things. And that meant I kept picking up the rope emotionally. I kept reaching out. I kept throwing the rope out in some cases to her and saying, please pick this up and have this conversation with me. This is the conversation I want to have as if I could make her. So that was... That was the big, I think, lesson of live your truth. It was, you don't need anyone else to agree with you to know what you think about the situation. Yeah. And for whatever reason, that was really a revelation to me. Like I just, it wasn't just that I needed to win the argument. It was that I needed to feel understood. I needed to feel emotionally connected. I was trying to reconnect emotionally at the center of my marriage and Realizing that I couldn't make that happen was, it was pretty devastating. <laughs> it was a big, it was a big thing I had to accept, but it was also a tremendous relief to realize that it wasn't up to me, that I alone could not save this marriage. I alone could not keep my family intact. And it wasn't my job. It wasn't my job to do it. So we're moving into very recent time in the story now, I guess. Yeah. After I put those emotional and financial boundaries in place and, and safety for my kids, she was unable to continue to live in our house. She decided to move out in January. And that was very painful. For me, it felt like abandonment and betrayal. Even though, of course, I had initiated a legal separation and many of my friends and I were like, well, what did you think was going to happen when you said legal separation, <laughs> dummy? And I was like, I saw it as a measure to try and get her to snap out of denial, right? That's what I really wanted. I was still trying to control, still trying to manage and manipulate. I was basically saying to her, pick me and pick our family over yourself and your pride. It wasn't even over the booze because, again, she stopped drinking back in November. Mm -hmm. She's very good at being a dry drunk. But, of course, the relapses have escalated and the disease has worsened. I believed in my marriage and I had made a commitment and... It To me, it wasn't just a commitment to her. It was a commitment to God. And I knew that something was very wrong and I was powerless over all of it, except myself. And it was in an Al-Anon meeting that I realized that although her leaving was not what I wanted, I could also use it to help heal myself and that I had some real codependent patterns that I could work on trying to change. And that what I needed to do was to focus on myself, not in a self-critical way, but in a self-loving way, and that I needed to take care of me and the boys as best as I could and start forgiving myself for all my mistakes and defects. I spent more time than I should have thinking, if only I'd said, no, you can't try drinking again in 2014, none of this would have happened, which of course is ridiculous. But I'm a doer. And once I make up my mind about something, I usually act on it. I haven't followed the don't make any big decisions for a year advice that we hear in Al-Anon. 
perhaps in time I'll think that's a mistake, but I just couldn't stay in a place where I felt rejected and abandoned all the time. I needed to move forward from there. So in March, I said, I don't think we're going to be able to reconcile. It doesn't matter why I stopped conversations about blame or anything else. So I you said, I think we're going to get a divorce. And she said, yeah, I think so too. And that's where we are. Huh? And that's where we, but we're amazingly amicable right now. Like we're moving through the financial piece of the divorce settlement and we're very civil. We, we don't fight in front of the kids. We're not actually fighting at all because I'm really strict about these boundaries. If we're talking about something that's not the divorce settlement or the kids, I just don't talk about it. I'm just like, we're not having this conversation. I'm civil and detached. Am I detached with love? Maybe some days. I'm detached with a smile at least. I'm still working through some anger and resentment, but I try not to let that out on her. I save it for the people who are emotionally safe for me. She's dealing with her own shame and guilt and she doesn't need any more piled on from me. And it doesn't help anything to share my feelings with her. It doesn't solve anything. It doesn't make anything better. I, I stopped going to the hardware store for bread. I stopped going to the car dealership for milk. I, I quit expecting her to do something that she can't do. And that has enabled us to have a constructive and positive relationship in which we're focused on co-parenting our kids. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that story. I'm pretty sure... There's going to be a bunch of people that are going to relate to it. Not the details, but the feelings. And I, at one point, was at that place where I was like, I don't know if I can continue to live with this person. And I sat there and didn't do anything for, well, I did a lot of things, but I didn't do anything about that for a couple of years until I knew what my answer was. And I think Eleanor gave me permission to do that, right? Yeah, and I would say the same thing, And even though we had different outcomes. And I will say, early on, listening to your story gave me a lot of hope. But I also recognized that there were some big differences. And, you know, there's other things going on in the background that I think also informed my decision. But Alanon gave me the permission to put myself first. It said, it's higher power first, you second, and everybody else third. As one very wise woman in my one of my meetings always says, HP, me, OP, for other people. That's HP, the order of things. HP, me, OP. Okay. <laughs> Hadn't and, heard that, um, but yeah. Yeah. I have an alarm on my phone that goes off every morning and every evening that reminds me to pray and to be grateful. And then Al-Anon gave me the permission to say, you don't have to stick around for this abuse. Yeah. Uh, sure. Or this feeling of rejection and betrayal, which I, I have some trauma related to that from earlier in my life. That's part of this story. And I recognize that's part of what's motivating me. But going to those meetings almost every day helps me remember that, that I am my own job and not anybody else. Mm -hmm. Again, thank you. And then we'll take a little break and we'll talk about our lives in recovery, where we talk a little bit about how recovery is working in our daily lives rather than in the crisis. And what's your first music choice here? 
So my first music choice is a sad song, but a really great song. It's a George Harrison song called Isn't It a Pity that I'm sure many people have heard. If you haven't heard George's version, you might have heard Nina Simone's, which is also brilliant. And the lyrics of this song are, isn't it a pity? Now, isn't it a shame? How we break each other's hearts and cause each other pain. How we take each other's love without thinking anymore, forgetting to give back. Isn't it a pity? I was learning this song on the guitar. My guitar teacher had picked it to teach me some of the skills that are in it when everything blew up and it became a meaningful anthem in my life at that time. So that's why I picked this song. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery. How have we experienced recovery recently? I had an Illinois meeting this morning, and we had a relative newcomer. It was her second meeting. And coincidentally, in our step rotation, we were at step one. So we didn't have to say, we're going to do step one because we have a newcomer, because we were going to do step one anyway. Where I am today with step one is in my relationship with one of my adult children who is going through a really rough patch and is angry about it, is scared about it, is, I think, resentful about the things that happened, the things that are happening. And although I haven't heard him say this about the decisions that he made that brought him to this place. Also expressing a desire to basically just run away from the problem. Like literally do a geographic and run away from the problem, feeling that if he's not in that place anymore, the problem will resolve in some way. I can't fix this for him. I can't control the other people around him. I have learned I learned years ago that I can't control him. Even when he was a teenager, he was, he might take suggestions. And we set some boundaries, like you can't smoke in the house, that I think he actually did obey. But all I can do is be there, listen, share my experience, which I did in a call a couple of weeks ago about finances and debt because one of the things that's come out is that he's dug himself a bit of a debt hole because he looked at how much money he's making and like oh yeah i can afford this i can afford that and as i have discovered and probably i don't know if you've you know been there but i've discovered that every time you make one of those decisions oh yeah i can add this on to my monthly expenses all of a sudden you discover that you can't. There was a time when this phrase from one of the Dickens books kept going through my head, which was something like income, 20 pounds, expenses, 19 pounds, 12 pence, or 12 shilling, whatever it is, 19 pounds and 10, result happiness. Income, 20 pounds, expenses, 20 pounds and 10, result misery. And, and it's that, that that little step, that one last little step. Anyway, so... He called last night, and my wife did most of the talking on the call, where he was expressing what's going on and what he is thinking about doing. And in my head, I'm like, that's a really bad decision. Don't do that. 
did not come out of my mouth, gave her program. And finally, my wife said, look, we're not going to solve this on this phone call. We're going around in circles, not her exact words, but, and I think I hear you. I love you. I wish the best for you. And I wish for you to pray on this, to, to talk to trusted advisors and please don't be impetuous. But I think we need to end the call now. And I was like, that is program right there. That is program (laughs) saying, yeah, we're not going anywhere anymore. We're just digging the hole deeper and let's stop digging. So that that's what I shared in the meeting this morning <laughs> because that is absolutely a step one issue for me that I am powerless over my adult children and their lives and their decisions. But with other tools that I've learned, like detaching with love, I can still be there for them. How about you? The topic in my meeting this morning was step six, because at the sixth month that we were on step six, and I haven't gotten to step six yet, but I was happy to, to listen to the wisdom shared. Step six is we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. And what I got out of the shares this morning and the reading was that it's one of those steps where I don't do anything. I'm just willing to let God do the thing or let my higher power do the thing. And it goes back to that third reading we talked about in my story that don't just do something, sit there. Get yourself will out of the way and wait and see what happens when you take your hands off the steering wheel and and let the higher power be in charge. And that is, that's something I have a hard time with. I've been able to apply it in some parts of my life, but I'm always catching myself doing it again in some other part of my life. But like many things in program, it's a lesson I'm going to learn again and again, I think. Uh, But in some ways, it was a relief to realize that I don't even have the power to remove my defects of character myself. So it's not up to me. That's probably a good thing. Yeah. That's probably a good thing. Thank you. Sometimes at this point, I would say, and we're going to talk about topic X coming up and I actually I'm having a conversation with with a, somebody tomorrow which is going to be way before this episode actually gets released about faith versus fear so I can't really invite contributions but I can ask for feedback on that or maybe you just wait till that comes out but we do in any case welcome your thoughts you can join our conversation here leaving us a voicemail or an email with your feedback, your questions, your sharing. And Laurel, how can people do that? You can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Call right now to 734-707-8795. You can use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. You can also send a voice memo or email to feedback at the We'd love to hear from you, share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know. If you would like advance notice for some of our topics so that you can contribute to that topic, you can sign up for our mailing list by sending an email to feedback at the recovery.show. Put email in the subject line to make it easier to spot. Spencer, where can our listeners find out more about The Recovery Show? You can go to our website, which is therecovery.show. 
We have all the information about the show there, which is mostly notes for each episode, which includes links to uh, the books that we read from or other things that we talked about, videos for the music, and there are some links to some other recovery podcasts and websites. If you want to refer a friend to The Recovery Show, that may be the easiest thing to do. Just send them to the website, therecovery.show. And I also want to uh, apologize to people who are on the email list because I had some advance notice about this topic we're talking about tomorrow, and I did not send out an email to the list to say, hey, you know, can you send some thoughts on this topic? So apologies about that. I'm trying to get back into the, the swing of doing this show on a more regular basis, and so we will get there. So it's a process, just as recovery is a process. And that's my excuse, and I'm sticking with it. What's your second music choice? Second choice is the Fleetwood Mac song Landslide, which is a really well-known song written by Stevie Nicks. I'm sure people have heard it before, but the lyrics are, I took my love, I took it down, climbed a mountain and I turned around. And I saw my reflection in the snow-covered hills till the landslide brought me down. Mirror in the sky, what is love? Can the child within my heart rise above? Can I sail through the changing ocean tides? Can I handle the seasons of my life? Well, I've been afraid of changing because I've built my life around you, but time makes you bolder. Even children get older and I'm getting older too. I've always loved this song, but lately I've found it really meaningful. I certainly have felt buried by a landslide first coming out of denial, <laughs> like a landslide of recognition. And now I'm often just swamped by grief for my marriage, for my family, for that life I thought I'd have. And there's also lyrics about aging in this song. Can I handle the seasons of my life? I'm 46, which is relatively young, but I'm feeling my middle age pretty acutely. I've got a bum knee. I found out this year I need hearing aids I'm using bifocals for the first time. So... <laughs> You know, that's that's feeling meaningful. And for sure, I was afraid of changing because I built my life around a marriage to an alcoholic. But I'm a lot happier now than I was six months or a year ago. And divorce is not always the answer, but change certainly is whatever form it takes within us. And we can only change ourselves and are powerless over other people, places and things. And that's powerless over aging too. It's better than the alternative, as they say, right? <laughs> I think this is a song about just recognizing what happens in life and accepting it. Now it's time to hear from you. KBP left a review in Apple Podcasts titled With Gratitude. I came across this show while in a recent low moment with my alcoholic dysfunctional family of origin, and boy, am I glad that I did. I recently moved across many time zones and have not yet found an ACA meeting to replace the one I was previously attending. The recovery show is helping to fill that gap and has been of immense comfort to me in my time of need. With every episode, I'm reminded that I am not alone and that all of us who are affected by this disease are relatives. Thank you, beyond words, to Spencer and to everyone who makes the recovery show possible. There's a heart emoji. Please keep up this good and immensely important work. Thank you, KBP, for that. And I am trying to keep it up. So here we are, one more episode coming out. Mary wrote, Dear Spencer, I'm a newcomer to the show. I've hit and missed for several months. I am familiar with the 12 steps through a family member's AA, 
When you read Your Remembrance of Your Mother, I Felt Such Heartache, everything you described your mother as being, mine was not. My mother was the alcoholic of my childhood. My parents had six children in seven years, of whom I am a twin and the youngest. Alcohol was present from before we were born, and yes, the usual hell for us kids. My dad tried his damnedest, and I don't know why he didn't leave with us in tow. Maybe back in the early 60s, we would have ended up with my mother. Who knows? My older brother said he really loved my mother. She became sober for several months and then suddenly became ill with liver cancer and died. No AA in our area, but somehow my dad knew to pound it in our brains that this was not my mother's fault, and he told us she was sick. He separated her from her alcoholism and seared it in our brains. Thank God for that. Remember at age four or five, standing outside a state mental institution with my twin brother and waving to a window. We weren't allowed in, and in my 40s, I worked in one. Wow, and no wonder. Anyway, I'm well-versed in the alcoholic life, and one of my older brothers went through AA and has been sober for 38 years. I was his significant other back then. I didn't give a hoot about any of that AA stuff. So now my ears are open to Al-Anon. ACA is way too deep for me, and I really am encouraged by the simplicity of Al-Anon. Yes, I am deeply affected by alcohol and need help. I am now joining a phone group as there are no groups for face-to-face around here that I can get to. The slogans, mind your own business, etc., are the medicine for the moment I glean from the show. Like thousands of others, I thank you for the effort you make for others. God bless you and encourage you. Your mother was a beacon for so many, and she did a beautiful thing by instilling that light in you. She does live on through you. Know that. Let her continue to shine her light. Thank you again and forever grateful, Mary. Thank you for that, Mary, and I hope that you are finding some recovery in your new meetings. I received a couple of personal voicemails from Will and from Molly, and I just want to say to you, thank you for letting me know how my experience and my words are touching you or helping you. And I want to send you my prayers and wishes for serenity, health, and happiness. Thank you for calling. Karen left us a voicemail. Hello, Spencer. My name is Karen. I'm calling from Texas. And I just discovered your podcast in the last week. And I certainly hope that you are continuing. I see the last date was May 7th. And I have been gaining so much from listening to you and to your guest speakers. And I hope and pray you are continuing on to have more podcasts. Thank you for what you do. And again, I pray that you will continue. And I God bless you. Thank you. Thank you for your call, Karen. I am definitely continuing. I have two more episodes already recorded and a third one scheduled to record in a couple of weeks. So plenty of material. I just have to get it out to you. And Kate left us a voicemail. Good morning, Spencer and Eric. This is Kate in California, and I wanted to share on episode 380, your talks about awareness and acceptance, also 379, letting go. Each of those resonates with my spiritual path and my understanding of Buddhism. 
The whole time you were talking, Eric, I was substituting the word mindfulness when you said awareness. Just as in the prior episode, I was substituting detachment for letting go. In Spencer's talk, acceptance, that is also a form of detachment. Don't be attached to outcomes. Accept what I cannot change. Mindfulness and awareness underline my whole spiritual path because I'm not able to either accept nor change what I'm not aware of. I cannot make a reasoned response to things if I'm not aware of them. So once I can see clearly what's really in front of me, then I can detach from my delusions that I am good or bad or that someone, something else is good or bad. I can detach from my denial and my cravings for a certain outcome. I was thinking all these thoughts when you started the story, Eric, of the child and the awakened man. When you first started, I thought, this sounds awfully familiar. Then I laughed out loud. The word Buddha is not a name, but actually means awakened. And I had just reread that classic Buddhist story on page 20 in the book Mindfulness and the Twelve Steps by Therese Jacob Stewart, uh, published by Hazelden Press. I really want to recommend that book for anyone interested in Buddhism or anybody working Step 11. The author grew up suffering deeply as an ACA, and then she got into her own multiple addictions as an adult. She runs a meditation center in the Midwest and is a practicing psychologist, and I find that her writings beautifully supplement my daily readers and the blueprint for progress. Also, Spencer, my condolences on the loss of your parents, and thank you for your sweet reflections through their dementia. My mom is 95 and is starting down the dementia pathway, and it's so hard not to tell her to buck up and be competent. I will work on patience and acceptance. Thank you both for your ongoing years of service and sharing your own experience, strength, and hope so the rest of us can grow. It's very, very helpful. Namaste. Hugs to both of you. Thank you, Kate, for that book recommendation. I will put a link in the show notes at therecovery.show slash 383. And also, thank you for clarifying what Buddha means. I don't think I knew that, so thanks. And last but certainly not least, Colleen left us a voice memo, sort of about boredom, but about a lot of stuff. Hi, Spencer and company at The Recovery Show. This is Colleen over in East Tennessee, and it's been a while since I have called into the show. I am on year five of being a grateful member of Al-Anon, and I have been an avid on-and-off listener (laughs) of The Recovery Show, more on than off as of late. On May 7th, I learned that my brother had died from his disease. And on May 8th, which was Mother's Day, I called my mother to tell her Happy Mother's Day and to tell her that her son had died. And while we don't know the exact cause of death yet, we're fairly confident that there's an alcohol-related encephalopathy that contributed to his demise. I've been thinking a lot recently about boredom as an Al-Anon I tried to utilize the search button for the recovery show to see if there was an episode on the topic of boredom, but I did some thinking this morning, and so I just wanted to share some of my thinking about that, so buckle up. I recently watched an SNL weekend update 
that had Pete Davidson, and I don't know when this was recorded. It was just a bit that I found on YouTube, and he talked about how boring sobriety was. <laughs> My brother constantly complained of boredom during his stints of sobriety. And boredom is mentioned a lot on the TV sitcom Mom. In my previous life, I was a pastor. And when I left the pastorate, my world got quiet really fast. My phone stopped ringing with calls. My texts stopped. My email inbox stopped filling up. And my calendar emptied immediately. I was very accustomed to lots of meetings on weeknights and other things of that kind of stuff, and I became immediately bored out of my skull. I was talking with my mom a few weeks ago, and I asked her if she could put her finger on the pulse point of the sorest part of the soreness of losing her son. What would she say? And she got really quiet, and then she started laughing, and she said, you're going to think that I'm really perverse, but I miss his phone calls. Now, he was also a schizoaffective bipolar who didn't really care to take his medicine, so he would call family members between 10 to 25 times a day each. There were four of us. And with his death, her world has become very quiet. I recently broke up with a longtime friend, and there are lots of reasons that I chose to do this. And it's, of course, not my job to diagnose another's disease, but there are several markers of that relationship and of her character that share similarities with alcoholics projection, manipulation, exaggeration, distraction, and drama, lots and lots and lots of drama. And there's a great analogy in how Al-Anon works with the idea of being in relationship with an alcoholic is like your house is on fire and as you're scurrying around to gather the mementos that are precious to you and to your loved ones, your alcoholic comes running up to you screaming because of a paper cut. I remember laughing so hard when I read that, being able to relate to it. And I think about that with this friendship, this particular individual. And the removal of myself was a long time coming. I had a lot of hope for something different or healthier. And all of that was diminished with her most recent tirade. And so I excused myself, and I had a really deep peace that came with the confidence of a right decision. But due to an inattentive slip on my end, a text from her came through about 10 days post-breakup. And staring me square in the face with everything thrown right back at me, the drama and complete lack of accountability or responsibility. And I'm on day three of wanting to correct, to admonish, to state my case, to pick up the rope. And so I realized as an Al-Anon, I also struggle with boredom. And by boredom, I mean quiet. I have a tendency to fill the uncomfortable quiet in my head with scrolling social media and news apps, reading article after article of good or trashy journalism. 
I fill the void with things that keep me anxious and increase the sense of drama in my life because that's where my comfort lies. And until I was in Al-Anon, it never occurred to me that I was raised in an alcoholic home. Neither of my parents drank, and nor were they dry drunks, but the alcoholic in my home was my eldest brother. He started drinking when he was 12, and I was five. That was the environment that I grew up in. And I think that's why I'm so twitchy to respond to my friend The death of my brother has increased a level of quiet in myself, and I have a pull to that ever-familiar distraction, drama. And so the takeaway for me is to remember that quiet, serenity, and boredom are not the same thing, nor is boredom necessarily a bad thing, and it's okay to be uncomfortable as long as I use it wisely. And so I've asked myself, what am I open to learning about myself today? What does my discomfort have to teach me about how I choose to fill my quiet time? And how can I lean into my character defect of boredom so that it blossoms into an asset? Those are my thoughts. I know it was long-winded. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you, Colleen, for that share. It really gave me some things to think about. Laurel, thank you so much for being with us today and like you to take us out with your third song. It was really my pleasure to be here. I'm honored to share and to meet you. It's recovery show has been so meaningful to me and I'm so grateful to you and I hope you'll have me back sometime. My my third song selection is, is a song called Let the Mystery Be by Iris DeMent. I, I like this song a lot. Um, it's about the existence of God to some extent. The lyrics are, everybody is wondering what and where they all came from. Everybody is worrying about where they're going to go when the whole thing's done. But no one knows for certain, so it's all the same to me. I think I'll just let the mystery be. Some say once you're gone, you're gone forever, and some say you're going to come back. Some say you rest in the arms of the Savior, if in sinful ways do you lack. Some say that they're coming back in a garden, a bunch of carrots and little sweet peas. I think I'll just let the mystery be. I fell in love with this song when I first heard it as the intro to a television show called The Leftovers. And then I fell in love with Iris Dement and her distinctive voice. I came into Al-Anon with a pretty good sense of my higher power. I was raised in the church, alienated from it when in my 20s when I came out as a lesbian, but I refused to be told that I wasn't one of God's children. So I wrestled with my own faith versus the homophobia of the mainline Protestant church. In the good old 1990s, boy, how the world has changed since then and not changed. Anyway, as a person who tends to overthink and overanalyze everything, this song to me means that I could just accept that there's a higher power that is perhaps beyond my ability to describe or know fully. I can have faith without knowing everything. And sometimes accepting that things are beyond my ability to fully grasp is a good lesson in humility. And I think that sort of parallels accepting my powerless over other people, places, and things. I'm powerless to fully know God, but I can still have faith. That's what this song means to me.
Thank you for listening. Please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you're facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.